we're going to read so 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read through to verse 12. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Meunites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazon Tamar, that is Engedi. Armed Josaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. When Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the courtyard, and he said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity ever comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now hear a men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow us to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away, they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they're repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It's great to be back with you again. And uh, I think I was here last in July, and that was the last time I preached as well. So if I'm a little bit rusty, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, <clears throat> I'll do my best. Uh, so... Neil read from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and that has been um, a, a verse that's all, that goes around in my head a lot as, over the last 12 months. Uh, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And we've all been there, haven't we? Where trouble or trials or something hits us in life, it hits us swiftly. It comes out of left field, as they say, and we don't know what to do. That could be we just find ourselves at a crossroads in life and we have decisions that we need to make choices you know or we get hit by unexpected circumstances and we need to make uh, a decision and, and we don't know what to do it could be that we some of us in the room are perhaps overwhelmed by the weight of a particular situation in our lives right now something happening in our families something happening in our jobs something happening with our children something happening with our elderly parents something uh, that someone is doing to you or against you, sinning against you in some way, just, you know, relational difficulties, whatever it might be, and we, and we don't know what to do. Um, it could be small things, could be big things, could be trivial things, could be things that have lasting impact, but 
I'm pretty certain that all of us know that kind of stomach churning feeling where we just don't know what to do when we're confronted with something. Now, when I was thinking about this and preparing this message, I thought, well, what do most people do when they don't know what to do? And the answer hit me, uh, we go to Google because Google knows everything, right? Yeah, so you can, so you can type in what to do when you don't know what to do and you will get these answers so here we go here, here's the the wisdom of google from results from some of the top business people and psychologists who offer their gems of advice so here, here they go focus on the ends not the means take action get a second opinion sleep on it accept the consequences with a smile watch an inspirational movie get a change of scenery Focus on your core values. Do some breathing exercises. Trust your gut. Get more information. Exercise. Unplug from the world. Get up early. Or just simply be confident in yourself and everything will be okay. Now, not all of those are wrong, are they? Not all of those are wrong. Some of them are more helpful than others, but really those things offer limited help and are ultimately probably unsatisfactory when we come to wondering what to do when we don't know what to do. Now, fortunately, we got a better place to go than Google, believe it or not, and that's the Bible. And in today's passage that Neil read, we, th that speaks directly into the types of situations and circumstances that we face that relate to what to do when we don't know what to do. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is a story of one of the rare good kings of Judah, okay? And he was a man called Jehoshaphat, and he is in a situation where he is overwhelmed with fear and hopelessness because he's got a kingdom to protect and he's got people to look after, but he doesn't know what to do. So he can identify with us and he can also teach us. So if you've got your Bible still open on page 451, keep it open because I want to keep referring back to it so that you see it come, what I'm about to say hopefully comes out of the story and not just out of my mouth. Um, but in verses 1 and 2, the story begins with God, who's in sovereign control of everything, beginning to just loosen his grip intentionally on the nations around Judah. And he allows the enemies of Israel and Judah to, to start to come against them and come against King Jehoshaphat. And we read that it's the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meunites. They, beget, they came together to wage war against Judah and Jehoshaphat. And that's a pretty scary thing because Judah really was a very small nation at the time, the southern kingdom. And so this is quite scary. This is like three relatively large kind of nations joining forces to attack a small piddly nation. And just Jehoshaphat, we see, begins to get wind of this. And in verse three, we see his response. And I love how honest the Bible is, uh, particularly like when the, the king is under threat. When he, when he got news of this impending doom that was heading his way verse three tells us he was alarmed <laughs> now 
I reckon that's probably a bit of an understatement, really, that he was alarmed. In my translation that I was reading, the English Standard Version, he said he was he was afraid, so alarmed and afraid. We, and I and I love that because King Jehoshaphat, although he was a good king, he wasn't a superman. He wasn't a superhero. He was just an ordinary, regular human being where when the odds were stacked against him and when things didn't look like they were going in his favor, he was scared. He was just like you and me. Well, he was just like me. I can't speak for you, but he was just like me. He was pretty fearful. Now, I'm sure... Again, I can say this with pretty much 100% certainty. I'm sure that no one in this room has been threatened by the attack of three nations coming together uh, against us. Let, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure of that. But I think that we can still identify with Jehoshaphat. We don't have a great army marching up to our door, but we can all relate to circumstances in our lives that make us feel trapped or helpless or alarmed, or afraid. I've got six kids, and we, uh, you know, from various times to times, they'd be scared of something. And I'm sure if you're a parent, you've probably said these same words as well. We say, there's nothing to be scared of. But actually, that's not really telling our kids the truth. There's very many things that we should be scared of, or that we are scared of as human beings. Snakes, <laughs> spiders, exams relationships, cancer, death, fuel bills. How many noughts are going to be on the end of your fuel bill? That can be scary. But we tell our kids, don't we? Oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Actually, it would be much better to say there are many things to be afraid of, but God's got them all. There's nothing that he's afraid of. There's nothing that he can't handle. And that's what I would like you to take away this evening. We might be in a place where, you know, admitting fear and weakness doesn't come naturally to us, but when we do, we will find God to be there to help us. Rarely do we admit as human beings that we're broken or lonely or despairing or falling apart or falling into sin or struggling to follow and trust the Lord. Rarely do we admit that we're afraid. Most often we come into church and uh, you ask, how are you doing? And the answer is, I'm fine. Yeah. Although we did it. We were at church just this afternoon at Trinity in Chippenham. And we said to a, little, uh, to a lady who sat in front of us, how, how's your week? And expected her to say, fine. And she read, oh, my car broke down. Uh, <laughs> my husband's job interview didn't go very well. Uh, what was it? We, there was I had a death in the family. There was like the... the the, the house flooded. I mean, there was like this string of things where we were like, oh, I just would have loved you to have said you were fine. <laughs> we... But Jehoshaphat here in the midst of the challenges, he, he doesn't say he's fine. He's alarmed and he's afraid. He could have pretended that he wasn't. He could have acted like he had it all together. He could have gathered his generals together and planned his military response. But instead, what he does is remarkable. Look at verse 3. And four, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. So Jehoshaphat's response to the challenges and the overwhelming situation that he's faced with is quite remarkable. He calls all the people together, and he says, we're going to fast, we're going to seek God at the temple in Jerusalem, and we're going to ask God for help. We're going to ask 
God for help. And what I love about Jehoshaphat and what I want to learn from him is that his first inclination in the midst of challenge was not to turn outward to see, well, who's my allies? The Moabites and the Ammonites. Well, I wonder what the Midianites are doing. Will they come on board? Or were the Egyptians or the Babylonians? How could I get out of this myself? He didn't try and seek help from those around him. Nor did he turn inwards and just think, well, I've just got to find strength and motivation and power and confidence from within to fight my enemies. Nor did he wallow away in self-pity and give in to a kind of crippling or paralyzing fear of an, an anxiety. What he did was he turned upwards to the Lord. He turned upward to the Lord. Perhaps he had in mind something that the chronicler records a bit earlier in the book, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13, when Solomon, King Solomon, builds and dedicates the temple, Solomon prays, uh, I think, this prayer uh, uh, of dedication to the temple, and then the Lord appears to him, and he, he responds to the dedication of the temple, and he says, listen, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send a plague among my people. So when situations and circumstances come that are really overwhelming and difficult, if my people who, call, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So Jehoshaphat's response is, okay, what God said, when these things happen, here's what we got to do. Go to him. Cast ourselves upon him. When our enemies are set against us, when our lives, our families, our marriages, our kids, or even our faith is threatened by Satan's devices, when we find ourselves in a situation where the odds are stacked against us, when we don't know what to do, Jehoshaphat tells us what to do, and it's summarized at the end in verse 12. When we don't know what to do, we'll put our eyes on you. Now, if you're tracking with me, the, the next question you want to ask is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to put our eyes, to fix our eyes on God? Well, verse 12 is a summation and a culmination of the entire prayer that Jehoshaphat begins in verse 6. And the prayer, uh, as we unpick it, shows us three ways in which we fix our eyes upon God. Okay, here's the first one. We fix our eyes on God by calling to mind his character. By calling to mind God's character. Look at verse six with me and the way that he begins praying lord the god of our ancestors are you not the god who is in heaven you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you so he, all of those few sentences there are, are jehoshaphat reminding himself and the people of judah about god's character he's the god of heaven He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the one who rules over all of the kingdoms. 
power and might are the company that he keeps. No one can stand against him. Nothing can happen outside of his will. Nothing can thwart his plan. He's sovereign over everything. And he's not only sovereign over everything, he's also good. And so he's powerful to do what he wants to do. And he's good in doing what he does. And so he can be trusted. And that's what we got to remember. That's the first way we set our eyes on on God when we're in a similar situation, overwhelmed by circumstances. When everybody else is, is freaking out and losing their heads and we fear that the sky is going to fall in on us, we must fix our eyes on God and remember and remind ourselves of the character of God, his power, his might, his goodness, his sovereignty, his mercy, his love, that he's untouched by sin and suffering And Jehoshaphat prays in a way that we can learn from because he begins by ascribing power and glory to God and reflecting on his character, his power, holiness, wisdom. And from that, I think there comes as we focus on God, as we fix our eyes on him, as we meditate on his character and his nature, it will strengthen our faith in him. It will strengthen our hope in him. It will strengthen our confidence in him that he is a God in heaven who controls the kingdoms of the nations, who has power and might over every situation, over cancer, over job loss, over financial hardship, over relational strife, over sickness, illness, whatever it might be for you. He's a God who is God over all. Therefore, he can be trusted. Paul, the Apostle Paul, would take it and write it another way in Romans 8. He would say, If this God is for us, who can be against us? So, the first way we fix our eyes on God when we don't know what to do is by reminding ourselves of his character. But there's a second one, and that's we fix our eyes on God by calling to mind his promises. So, we remember his character and nature, and then we remember the promises and his word spoken to us. And that's what Jehoshaphat goes on to uh, speak about in verses seven through nine. Uh, Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So his hope in the Lord is built upon the character of God and then the promises of God, the promises that God has made to his people. And notice how Jehoshaphat addresses God. He calls him in verse uh, 6, the God of our ancestors. But then he also refers to him as our God, indicating that Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah knew him to be a close and intimate and personal God. One who was involved with them. One who just wasn't dispassionately far off, but that he was their God. And he was also the God of their ancestors, meaning he is a faithful God, an unchanging God, one who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. One who made promises to Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Jehoshaphat and to all of his people. And Jehoshaphat recounts those promises more specifically. So he says, you promised us this land. You brought us into this land. You've chosen to dwell here in the temple. You've put your name here. You've promised to help those who seek you. Lord, your glory and your name and your reputation are at stake as this army marches against us. 
And I know that you're passionate about your glory and you're faithful to your promises. Therefore, we're fixing our eyes on you and we don't know what to do, but we know you, who you are and we know what you can do. And so we're just going to trust you. And he remembers what God has done in the past and the promises that he's made and he clings to them. He'd understood how God had done amazing feats to create the nation, to establish the nation, to protect the nation. And therefore, he would continue to deliver his people because he is a faithful God. And in the same way, when we experience situations where we're overwhelmed, circumstances that we don't understand, we can have a sure and steady hope in the promises of God to us. Not simply to Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon, but as Neil referenced earlier, in the promises that find their yes and amen in Jesus. If Jehoshaphat had a reason to trust God based on the promises to Abraham, how much more do we have to trust God on the basis not of the promise of Jesus, but of the fulfillment of Jesus, one who came and died for us? So when we don't know what to do, we fix our eyes on the promises of God that find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. We look to the place where he came to rescue us, to die for us. The Apostle Paul would take this again and rewrite it in Romans 8 and say, if this God is for us, who could stand against us? If this God did not spare his one and only son, but freely gave him for us all, how will he not, together with him now, freely give us all that we need? Jesus is our good shepherd. He's the one who fulfills Psalm 23, who will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, and who will pursue us with mercy and grace all the days of our lives. Jesus is the one who is uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 who will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. Jesus is the one described in Matthew uh, 11 as gentle and lowly, who invites us to come with all of our burdens and draw near to him and find that his yoke is light and he gives rest. Jesus is the one who, when we acknowledge our weaknesses, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he is the one who pours out grace upon grace, even if he doesn't remove the thorn in our flesh. And Jesus is the sympathetic high priest, the writer of Hebrews will tell us, who can identify with us in our sufferings and yet invites us to draw near to his throne of grace that we might find mercy to help us in time of need. So when we don't know what to do, we fix our eyes on God by calling to mind the sure and the steady promises that are ours and that find their yes and amen in Jesus. But there's a third way as well. When we don't know what to do, we fix our eyes on God by calling out to him for help. So we first remind ourselves of his character and nature, then we reflect on and remind ourselves and cling to the promises that God has made to us and fulfilled in Jesus. And then finally, 
we cry out to him for help. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat displays his trust and his dependence on God by humbly admitting his weakness and his powerlessness. Look at verse 12. Oh God, judge the nations, for we have no power to face them alone. This vast army is, is beyond our human ability to, to fight. And we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. He throws himself upon God alone for help. He knew that he and the army and the people of Judah could not do anything in their own strength. He knew if they were going to get out of this tight spot that it had to be God. So he pleads, he prays, and he encourages the people around him to pray that God would help them in their hour of great need. And I think verse 12 is one of the most powerful expressions of trust in God found anywhere in Scripture. And that's why I think it's stuck with me throughout the last 12 months, because when I've not known what to do, and there have been plenty of days, <laughs> and there remains plenty of days to come, I'm sure, where I will not know what to do. But I can fix my eyes on him who does. And I can trust him. And I can cry out to him for help. In the face of the onslaughts of life, in the face of the rising anxiety that we might all be experiencing for various reasons, in the face of overwhelming odds against us, in the face of not knowing what to do, we can know what to do. We fix our eyes on the one who can help us. So how do we respond? Is, is our first inclination to run to God in prayer as it was Jehoshaphat's? Often it's not mine. I'm hoping it'll change to become more often. Do we trust his character and his covenant promises? And do we call upon him for guidance? Or do we, do we try and hunker down and grit our teeth? And see it through in our own strength? Or worse, does the storms toss us so much that the anchor snaps and we just kind of go lurching from side to side, totally discouraged, totally disorientated? Jehoshaphat would say, fix our eyes on God. Humbly lay down our self-sufficiency confess our weakness, our inability, our helplessness, and throw ourselves on the mercy of God to help us. And when we do, we'll find God is good to his word. Look with me at verse 15 to 17. Because as Jehoshaphat draws together the people to pray, God sends him encouragement in an unexpected way. Uh, he delivers a, a, a prophetic word by a man called Jehoshaphat, Jehaziel, who says this in verse 15, he comes, he gets an audience with the king and he says, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And he says, tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up the pass of Ziz. And when you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Juriel. And you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, 
and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. So in other words, God responds immediately, which is wonderful, isn't it? And he says, listen, do not be afraid. These things will still come against you. The army's still going to be there. But who else is going to be there with you? The Lord you can trust in. The Lord you can hope in. The Lord who will fight for you. And the Lord who will ultimately deliver you. Now, it's not just a sit back and relax and let God just, you know, you just chill and God's got you. He still wants us, you know, verse 17 is full of action verbs. Stand firm, hold your position, go out against them. This is the idea of like, you know, that it's an active faith and trust in God. Okay, God is with me. I've got to face these things. I can't just retreat from them. But God is with me. His presence is with me. He is going to fight for me. The Lord will be with you, and he will give you deliverance. That might not be immediately, as it was for Jehoshaphat. You know, he sent the, the worship band and the singers out first rather than the troops, which is kind of surprising because you think, well, if you're going to go to war, why do you send the singers out? But I think that that's the Bible telling us, hey, this is God's fight, not Jehoshaphat's. And what better way to show that than to send the singers out? There is, there is absolutely no way that me and Neil on the front line will defeat any kind of army when we sing. <laughs> <laughs> but God doesn't need us. He fights for his people to deliver us. And then verse 22, it finishes with this. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Germ uh, Germany, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. It may not be for you and me immediately, as it was for the Judah that day, but it will be ultimately. But in the meantime, while we stand in the face of the things that attack us and confront us, the Lord will be with us. So even though we don't know what to do, we can fix our eyes on him. Fix our eyes on his character, fix our eyes on his promises, and cry out to him for help. In whatever circumstances we face, big or small, we can trust our God in Christ enough to pray, Lord, we don't know what to do, but help me to fix my eyes on you. And what we will find is that we have hope in God because of Jesus for anything and everything that we face. Now, I'm sure there are some people in this room right now who have burdens and challenges that you've yet to bring before the Lord. And I just encourage you, like, instead of ruminating about it, instead of thinking anxious thoughts about it, 
fix your eyes on the God of Abraham, Moses, and David, and Solomon, and Jehoshaphat. Ask someone to pray with you before you leave this evening. Cry out to God together. That's what Jehoshaphat and the nation of Judah did, didn't they? They prayed together. And that would be a great way to just immediately care for one another, help one another, take these things that challenge us, that confront us against, that come against us, take them to the Lord. Uh, and what we'll find is that we have great hope in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this evening that your word is true and good and powerful. Lord, we, to differing degrees, all of us in this room face things in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our jobs, in our schools, in whatever situation of life we're in, big or small, that perplex us, that trouble us, things that we don't know what to do with, that stomach-churning sense of uncertainty, Lord, we pray that when we do not know what to do, we would fix our eyes upon you, your character, your promises, and that we would cry out to you for help and find that you are with us and you fight for us and that ultimately because of Jesus, one day you'll wipe away every tear and you will do away with all that comes against us and you will right every wrong and you will make all things new. So give us that hope, we pray, that we have a great friend in Jesus. Amen.